0: Welcome to another Finnegan podcast, where we discuss recent cases and topics impacting the intellectual property community. Today, we are joined by Finnegan attorneys Tom Irving, Amanda Murphy, and Caitlin O'Connell to discuss the recent Federal Circuit case, Indivior versus Dr. Reddy's. There has been press about recent Federal Circuit case of Indivior versus Dr. Reddy's. Caitlin, can you please discuss the facts of the case? wherein a two-to-one decision, all claims except one were found unpatentable and explain to us the difference between the claims held unpatentable and the claim upheld?
1: Sure, Kim, I'd be happy to. So in this case, we're dealing with Indivior's patent, US patent number 9687454, which for the remainder of this podcast, I think we'll refer to as the 454 patent uh, for everyone's benefit. Uh, notably, that patent issued from an application number 14 uh, and was in fact the fifth continuation of uh, an earlier filed application. That earlier filed application was filed on August 7, 2009. Turning specifically to the 454 patent, uh, the, the patent discloses products and methods for treatment of narcotic dependence in a user and the 454 patent contained one independent claim and 13 dependent claims. Dr. Reddy's petitioned for inter partes review of claims 1 through 5 and 7 through 14 of the 454 patent. And in its petition, Dr. Reddy's argued that the polymer weight percentage limitation in particular uh, did not have written description support in that first filed application and thus were not entitled to the benefit of the Uh, August 7th, 2009 priority date. Dr. Reddys further argued that because those claims were not entitled to the benefit of that filing date, they were anticipated by the publication of that application. The PTAB in its final written decision found that Dr. Reddys had failed to establish that Claim 8, which recited 48.2 weight percent of the water-soluble polymeric matrix lacked written description support. And in finding that, the PTAB noted that there are two tables in that earlier filed 571 application, which disclosed formulations that comprised exactly 48.2 weight percent of a water-soluble polymeric matrix. Because they had fe- that CLAIM-8 had written description support in that earlier filed application, the PTAB then found that Dr. Reddy's had failed to establish that CLAIM-8 was anticipated by the publication. In contrast, however, the PTAB determined that Dr. Reddy's had successfully de- ter- demonstrated that the 571 application did not provide written description support for uh, claims 1, 7, and 12. These claims recited ranges for the polymeric, um, water-soluble polymeric matrix. Specifically, claim 1 recited about 40 weight percent to about 60 weight percent of the water-soluble polymeric matrix, while claims seven and 12 recited about 48.2 weight percent to about 58.6 weight percent. In finding that Dr. Reddys had successfully demonstrated these claims lacked written description support, the PTAB noted that the earlier filed application did not discuss bounded or closed ranges for the polymer weight percentage, and in fact, taught away from the particular ranges that were claimed in claims one, seven, and 12 of the 454 patent. And while the PTAB did note that the earlier filed application disclosed examples that contained water-soluble polymeric matrix within those claimed weight ranges, they found that neither the ranges themselves nor the end value of those ranges were disclosed in the earlier filed application. Because the earlier filed application did not uh, provide written description support for those claims in the 454 patent, the PTAB determined that the publication of the earlier filed application was prior art to claims 1 through 5, 7, and 9 through 14. Um, And Indivior did not contest the anticipation arguments, thus the PTAB uh, held that claims 1 through 5, 7, and 9 through 14 were invalid as anticipated. Following that final written decision, Indivior appealed the PTAD's holding that Claims 1 through 5, 7, and 9 through 14 were unpatentable, uh, focusing solely on the written description issue, while Dr. Reddy's cross-appealed the PTAD's holding with respect to Claim 8 and the um, written description support issue there as well. Now, Kim, I'm going to send it back to you.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. I understand there was a spirited dissent by Judge Lynn with a major point of disagreement being about whether the 1976 Court of Customs and Patent Appeals, known as the CCPA, case in In In-Ray Wertheim controlled. Amanda, can you please lay out for us the Federal Circuit's decision and the disagreement over the application of Wertheim?
2: Absolutely, thanks Kim. (laughs) So in analyzing claims 1 through 5, 7, and 9 through 14, the Federal Circuit majority started from the premise that to satisfy the written description requirement for a claimed closed range, a skilled artisan must be able to reasonably discern a disclosure of that range. While this requirement would easily be satisfied by a prior application that expressly disclosed an identical range to the one claimed, the majority held that the requirement was not met here. In reaching that decision, the majority highlighted the fact that the 571 priority application explicitly recited neither the ranges recited in claims 1, 7, and 12, nor the ca- in the case of claim 1, the recited end values of 40 weight percent and 60 weight percent. Instead, the 571 application contained tables disclosing weight percentages of individual polymer components in exemplary films that when identified and pooled, yielded specific and discrete examples of aggregate polymer weight percentages fallen within the claimed ranges. But the, but the majority held that disclosure was not sufficient because a skilled artisan would have to cobble together these numbers into the claimed ranges after previously identifying and summing the weight percentages of each of the individual polymeric components in the samples. According to the majority, filing an application that requires those skilled in the art to undertake such an analysis amounts to nothing more than an invitation to go on a hunting expedition to patch together a synthetic definition of an invention after the fact. The majority also pointed to the 571 application statement that, Any desired level of polymer could be used in the film, and its disclosure of embodiments having polymer weight percentages falling outside of the claimed ranges. And they noted that such disclosures would lead a skilled artisan away from the conclusion that the inventor had possession of the claimed subject matter as of the filing date. And finally, the majority explained that because broadly articulated rules are particularly inappropriate in this area, the patent owners' analogies to previous cases involving similar facts could not replace the necessarily fact-specific analysis required in this case. So in the end, the majority held that the claims one through five, seven, and nine through fourteen lacked written description support in the 571 application and therefore were anticipated by the Myers publication. Judge Lynn, on the other hand, felt that the majority opinion ran counter to the court's long-standing guidance on written description support for claimed ranges, set forth in cases such as the CCPA's 1976 decision in Ray Wertheim and the Federal Circuit's now Proprian case from 2019. Judge Lynn considered both cases to be directly on point and to necessitate a different outcome. As a result, Judge Lynn wrote separately to explain why he thought the majority reached the wrong conclusion with respect to Claims 1, 7, and 12. According to Judge Lynn, the majority's decision rested on an improper reading of the specification and applied an overly demanding standard for written description of ranges compared to the standards applied in the court's earlier opinions. Rather than engaging in a fact-specific analysis that incorporated analogies to those prior cases, Judge Lynn felt the majority opinion attempted to establish a categorical rule for claims reciting closed ranges, one that demands explicit disclosure of essentially identical ranges. And Judge Lynn noted that the majority did this despite having recognized that broadly articulated rules are particularly inappropriate in this area. Since Judge Lynn was unable to find any authority for the majority's rule that written description support for a closed range requires a disclosure of a closed range rather than discrete values, he dissented from that portion of the opinion. So with that, it's back to you, Kim.
0: Thanks, Amanda. Now, Tom, you have been at the firm since 1955, which was amazingly even before the dissolution of the CCPA and merger thereof into the Federal Circuit. You have long trumpeted your belief that all CCPA decisions are binding precedent at the Federal Circuit and have been since the Federal Circuit's first decision in South Corporation versus US, October 28, 1982. Please explain the basis for your belief and how long do you guess CCPA cases upholding that binding precedent status? After all, there has been no new CCPA case since 1982. Hence, all CCPA cases are at least about 40 years old.
3: I can't watch it. Denigrating something because it's at least 40 years old. I've darn near doubled that. So I, you know, I don't believe in that. I'm with Felix Frankfurter the Supreme Court. I said, you can't look at the date of a case. I am so happy to be here. Usually I am phlegmatic. I have no enthusiasm, but today I'm wired because I was at Finnegan, as Kim said, when Wertheim was decided. And that, let the record reflect, was before Kim, Caitlin, and Amanda were born. So before their conception, reduction of practice, I already knew about Wertheim. And I have cited it many, 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 many times over the years, both at PTAB and at, um, in prosecution for the USPTO. And so to me, what's really interesting, and, and you know, I thought that Caitlin and Amanda did a beautiful exposition of the case, and that's not what I want to go into, because what I'm interested in is how long, how long will this be binding precedent? The South Corporation case has a quote, and the quote flat out says that, you know, CTPK, CCPA cases will be binding precedent at the federal circuit. Now, what that means is, th- think about this. The CCPA always sat on banc. There were only five CCPA judges. They always sat together. I, having followed that thing from when I started in 75 until it dissolved in 82, I know that's correct. There was never less than on banc. And so, therefore, every CCPA case is an on bond case unless two things happen. One, if it was overruled by a later CCPA case, since they're always sitting on bomb, it could have been. And second, if it's overruled by the Federal Circuit on bond. Now, those are, those are uh, steep climbs. Uh, first of all, we can really figure out whether the, any CCP case that you're interested in relying on. Uh, we used to call it shepherds. I don't know what you call it these days, but you can find out if it was ever overruled by another CCP case. That is easily found out. Now on the federal circuit on Bonk, well, you have to stay attuned and see, well, what comes out in the future? Cause we, we don't know. And so basically you've got to follow this along and see what happens, but in the absence, in the absence of either the CCPA overruling a prior decision, or the Federal Circuit sitting on bank and overruling, hey, it's on, it's on bank authority. Now, Wertheim is particularly interesting to me. What it always gets cited for is what Caitlin and Amanda have emphasized. Get cited for the proposition about ranges. And there was one claim in there, one claim said at least uh, 35%, and that was no good. That one fell out. And then there was another claim that had a range cobbled together, it was okay. What is rarely noticed though, there was a claim in Wertheim where the particle size was at least 0.25 millimeters sustained. That was found to have written description. So my conclusion of all that is as I believe Judge Lurie said, these cases are so factually dependent, So you gotta look very carefully. But I think what the important thing for this generation is find out about the CGB cases, read them, apply them. The MPEP is full of of CGB cases. Now, how long will they last? I have given this matter great thought. I have meditated on how long these cases will be effective. And I thought the obvious thing came to mind Was the Christian Bible, the Quran, the Talmud, and the Torah? Those documents are thousands of years old, and people are still relying on them, according to their own philosophies, relying on those as binding precedent. And so, whoa, these could go on a long time. Also, think about it's much more modern, but the Shakespearean plays, Hamlet, Macbeth, all these great plays, Othello. They're as relevant today as they were when whoever wrote Shakespeare, and I am not a historical authority, I can't tell you who the author was of the Shakespearean plays, I don't know. But whoever it was, those are still universal truths. So how long will the CBA cases be binding precedent? First of all, they're not gonna be binding precedent unless we the bar take the time to find out about them. I mean, you, know, you can't rely on a case you don't know about, right? So you need to learn the CCPA, CCPA cases. We have courses on things like that that are very, very interesting and are instructive. And then you have to apply them and you put them in your briefs and whether you're before the federal circuit or a district court or PTAP or the USPTO. Now, as one of you mentioned, I think the USPTO is probably the, 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 the less, less steep climb because it's all over the MPEP. And Amanda and I, with a group of people, we are now doing a study about the CCPA cases to see what happens. And we're going to see, well, what happened at the the beginning in the first five years of the Federal Circuit? I assume they almost always relied on CCPA cases. What else was there? But then we're going to look at the last five years of the Federal Circuit and how long are these cases, how often are these cases cited and relied on? It will be fascinating. But for now, my closing statement would be. I think you should invoke the rule against perpetuities. You should consider that the CCPA cases will be binding at least for lives in being plus 21 years. Thank you, Kim, back to you. Well, thank you, Tom,
0: Caitlin and Amanda for such an insightful discussion. We look forward to seeing how these issues continue to play out. For more commentary on intellectual property, news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional
1: information on the firm, please visit Finnegan.com. Thank you.